Today's topic is an absolutely enormous one. Uh, even if I had been here half an hour ago, there was no chance of doing justice to it. And um, that's because the topic covers not only the schism itself, but also the councils that tried to repair the schism. Okay? Now, <laughs> since none of them worked, um, what I propose we do is find out what they said, and I propose to go in reverse order. I'm going to start with the reunion council that everybody knows about, namely the Council of Florence, held off and on from 1438 to 1445. Okay? It was not a good era in European history to try to keep a lot of bishops together in one place. So the council broke off, resumed, etc., etc. Now, the important part of uh, Florence's work for us is the decrees for reunion that Florence made for the Greeks, for the Armenians, for the Jacobites, which was a faction of the church in Syria, and um, especially important for us is the decree for the Greeks. Many Greek delegates were present, took part in the debates at Florence, and so what I'm reading to you now is an agreed text. Greeks and Latins agreed on this text. I'll read you the text and then I'll say a few words about why it didn't stick. Okay? In the name of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with the approbation of this Holy General Council of Florence, we define that this truth of faith be believed and accepted by all Christians. Now, the we there is uh, Pope Eugenius IV. What he's doing is defining this as dogma with the consent of the council present. So this is not the council's doctrine. It's the pope's doctrine with the council's approval. This truth of faith is uh, to be believed and accepted by all Christians, and that all likewise profess that the Holy Spirit is eternally from the Father and the Son, and has his essence and his subsistent being, both from the Father and the Son, proceeds from both eternally as from one source. When you read the translations of this, uh, instead of using the word source, they usually use the word principle, which is ridiculous. We don't use the word principle in English that way. Is this supposed to be a translation or not? The right translation for principium in the Latin and arche in the Greek is source, one origin or source. Okay, So the Spirit is coming from the Father and the Son as from one source and by one spiration. In other words, there's one joint action, if you want to call spiration an action, that's one joint doing of the Father and the Son. We declare that the holy doctors in, that what the holy doctors and fathers say, namely 
that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son tends to this meaning. In other words, that classical Greek way of putting it, from the Father through the Son, is defined as acceptable. It amounts to the same thing. I don't know how long your memories are. Wasn't I down here not all that long ago talking about the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yeah. And didn't I have a uh, piece of chalk? <laughs> didn't I have uh, a, uh, a diagram on the board? Yes, I did. And it illustrated the problem. This is supposed to be a circle, and the dot in the middle is supposed to be the center of the circle. All right? Now, I want you to consider a, um, what do you call it, a radius that arises from the center, goes to the circumference, but then also continues on. Okay? Now, the Latins had a very general verb, prochatere, which meant to come from a point any which way or other. So they were happy to say, if this line represents the Holy Spirit, the center is the Father, and the circumference is the Son. They were happy to say that the Spirit prochated from the Father and from the Son. Okay? The Greeks had a different uh, vocabulary. They had separate words for coming from an absolute starting point, that was ekporalistai, and coming from any intermediate point, that was proienai. So the Greeks had two verbs where the Latins had one. The Greeks wanted to insist that the son ekporalistai, sorry about I hate transliterating Greek into English letters, but you probably appreciate it. Anyway, um, they, were they insisted that the son ekporeletai from the father, because the father is like the absolute source or starting point. Then they were willing to say that the spirit proeanai from the Son. Okay? A nice compromise way of talking to the Latins in such a way that the Greeks would not abandon their own vocabulary was to say that the Son is, uh, that the Spirit is from the Father through the Son. Okay? This chart, uh, the, the, the little diagram of mine, shows you how that can be, okay? The line of the Spirit's procession starts from the Father, but passes through the circumference there, through the Son. And the Latins are saying, eh, if that's the way you want to say it, fine. In other words, we're not going to fight over semantics. And uh, by this, by saying from the Father and through the Son, the Greeks... Uh, signify that the Son also is the cause in their usage and source in our usage. Okay. 
of the Holy Spirit. So the Son is a source of the subsistence of the Holy Spirit, as is the Father also. All right, now the rest of this uh, is not going to raise any eyebrows. All things which are the Father's, the Father himself has, be- has given in begetting his only begotten Son. Without exactly being the Father, the Son himself possesses this from the Father, namely, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son from whom he was, moreover, eternally begotten. Uh, We define, in addition, that the explanation of the word filioque for the sake of declaring the truth and also because of imminent necessity has been lawfully and reasonably added to the creed. Okay. (laughs) Notice that this is a judgment about the canonical process, or rather, lack of canonical process, that put the word filioque into the Latin of the Nicene Creed. It's because Nicene Constantinople. Let me use a mass. That creed. The word was originally not there. We don't know exactly where the use of it started. Probably in Visigothic Spain. Uh, the doctrine of uh, procession from the Father and from the Son was certainly debated in Spain in those days at the councils of Toledo. Uh, this, is bef- this was before the, the, the Muslims came and took over Spain, so they still had those uh, delightful Visigothic kings. And uh, great saints flourished, and regular councils were held at Toledo. And this was debated, and it's possible that this usage began in Spain, proceeded from there to the court of Charlemagne, eventually came south over the Alps, but we know that as late as 860, the word was not yet in use when the creed was cited in the church in Rome, when the creed was quoted. So it was slow coming to Rome, okay? Eventually it did. Point is, Rome never made any opposition to it. Rome was satisfied that the doctrinal basis for the addition was okay. But um, uh, there never was an official council prior here to Florence that said adding that word is okay. So it was one of these things that crept over as a matter, crept in as a matter of usage. Okay. And uh, all the Pope is saying here is that, well, there were good reasons. You know, served a need. Okay. Next paragraph has to do with Eucharistic matters. Listen to this. We, that's Pope Eugenian, uh, have likewise defined that the body of Christ is truly effected in unleavened and or, I'm sorry, or leavened wheat and bread. Unleavened or leavened. And that priests ought to effect the body of our Lord in either one of these, each one, namely, according to the customs of his church, whether that of the West or that of the East. 
okay? Now, this breadth of view was not always reciprocated on the eastern side. Um, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me talk a minute now about what became of the Council of Florence. The Greek delegates went home. Remember, this is only about 20 years before Constantinople fell. The Greek delegates went home and were raked over the coals. There was a large party in the Episcopate in the East that simply did not want union on these terms because they still believed in the theological case against the filioque, and they had many other complaints about Roman usages as well. They didn't want the union. And so the whole thing fell through. The chief campaigner uh, in the East against accepting the union decree of Florence was a bishop, Mark of Ephesus. Okay? I don't want to say any more about Mark of Ephesus. Uh, some people are fans of his, and I'm not particularly such a fan. I think this was the last chance for a union to work, and um, Mark of Ephesus, among others, uh, sabotaged it. And then um, uh, the Greeks started uh, giving the Latins fancy names. Okay. Did you all know, I assume you're all Latins here, did you all know that you are azimists? A Z Y M I S T S. Azimist. That's somebody who uses unleavened bread in communion. Uh huh. In, in the Eucharist. If you don't have it leavened, you're an azimist. Not only that, but you are also a filioquist. Yes. Filioquist azimists. That's what you all are. All right. Now, there were other griefs and problems uh, that were briefly addressed uh, at Florence. And um, uh, I will mention them very quickly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over uh, the um, discussion of the eschatological issue. It had to do with what happens to souls when they uh, leave this life um, repentant for their sins, but not yet having made sufficient satisfaction for their sins. Do they um, go to purgatory where they experience the cleansing uh, uh, from those sins, uh, or do they simply rest until the resurrection, okay? And um, the uh, Council of Florence takes a view that they are indeed cleansed in purgatorial fire. More interesting for us is the final paragraph of this decree for the Greeks. We define likewise that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff hold the primacy throughout the entire world. And that the Roman pontiff himself is the successor of blessed Peter, the chief of the apostles. 
and the true vicar of Christ, and that he's head of the entire church, and the father and teacher of all Christians, and that full power has been given to him by blessed Peter. I'm sorry. Full power was given to him in blessed Peter by our Lord Jesus Christ to feed, rule, and govern the universal church. Okay? Now, that, of course, was another sore point. Uh, here we have the Greeks agreeing to that universal primacy of jurisdiction um, held by the successor of Peter. All right. Now, I've told you what Florence said, what the Pope defined at Florence, okay? And I have told you why it did not result in a permanent reunion, okay? The work of the Greek delegates was undone when they got back home. And, of course, the Greeks had, I mean... Not to mention the theological problems, the Greeks had plenty of reason to be mad at the Latins. I mean, after all, one of the Crusades had sacked Constantinople. Was it the Venetians or the Genoese? I think it's the Venetians. Just despoiled the churches and looted and, and just laid the place into a terrible mess. And as you can well imagine, uh, the Greeks were not going to be happy with the Latins after that. Um, when you think of the Byzantine Empire, um, I want you to think of Argentina. Okay? Because the two countries, well, Byzantium was once a country, uh, share the trait uh, that's called, I think, megacephaly. One huge overgrown head and a tiny withered little body. Okay. In Argentina, everything turns upon Buenos Aires. That's where everybody worth knowing lives, and it's the business capital, economic capital, political capital, everything. And the rest of the country is basically the sticks. Wow, Byzantium became the same way, especially after the Muslim conquests took away the huge provinces of Syria and Egypt, and then the Turks took away Byzantine control of Anatolia, now Turkey. Uh, there was very little left to the territory of the empire. It was shrinking to be just the city itself. All right? Well, what do you think the Argentines would think of the, port of the uh, Brazilians if they invaded Buenos Aires, sacked it, and proceeded to set up the Portuguese Republic of uh, <laughs> Argentina? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. This was not a good move. Um, some of us have not forgiven the Venetians to this day. But anyway, <clears throat> the, the, the Greeks had their reasons to be extremely hostile to the Latins that fed into the campaign to frustrate the unity work of the Council of Florence. Now I want to go back in time. 
I want to go back in time to the Second Council of Lyon. The date of the Second Council of Lyon is 1274. Okay. So, so we've gone back almost 200 years. And at this point, there was another earlier reunion effort. Union was urgently desired by, reunion with the West, was urgently desired by the Emperor Michael Paleologus. Okay? And he sent delegates, not only that, but intervened personally and submitted a creed, his statement of faith, to the Council of Lyon. Okay? which was absolutely accepted at this council. In faithful and devout profession, we declare that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, not as from two beginnings, but from one. Not from two breathings or spirations, but from one. The Most Holy Roman Church, Mother and Teacher of all the faithful, has up to this time professed, preached, and taught this. She firmly holds, preaches, declares, and teaches the same, unchangeable and true opinion of the Orthodox fathers and doctors, Latin as well as Greek. But because some through ignorance of the irresistible aforesaid truth have slipped into various errors, we in our desire to close the way to errors with the approval of the sacred council condemn and reject those who presume to deny that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. Or say that he comes from the Father and the Son as from two beginnings, or accuse us of saying that. Now, i got to give you a break. I know I do. But just before I do, let's talk about this, not as from two sources, but as from one. My chart here cannot do justice to that. Because it depends, it turns upon the crucial point of Trinitarian doctrine, that unless two divine persons are on opposite sides of a relation, they're identical. If they're on opposite sides of a relation, they're distinct. Okay? The Father begets, the Son is begotten. That's opposite sides of the begetting relation. So they have to be distinct in that regard. But they don't have to be distinct in other regards. They're not on opposite sides of a relation with respect to spirating the Holy Spirit. They're on the same side. Okay? They're on the principium or source side. The source give rise to the Holy Spirit is what is from the source. But the Father and the Son are not on opposite sides of any relation here. So they coincide. That's why the Latins say not two principia, starting points, but one. Did it ever occur to you to wonder why Father, Son, and Holy Spirit suddenly become just exactly one God? Answer? Because when it comes to absolutely existing, they're not relatively opposed to one another. Huh? 
they become absolutely, identically one absolute being. Okay? Within that one absolute being, the personal differences arise if you look at the relations between the persons. But in simply existing, they're flat out one God. Okay. Now then, it's 11 o'clock. You deserve a break. All right, we're going to take a, a quick... Um... I still remember, well, people are wandering back in here, I still remember... Uh... The, my many wonderful classes with Dr. Marshner that I took and uh, the grueling hours. You always walked into a Dr. Marshner final knowing that there was no way you could pass. <laughs> and and uh, the first test I ever took with him, he came back after we had taken the test to the next class and he says, I have all of your tests in front of me and you all ought to be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> and we were just, you know, and the girls were crying and and he says, you all got A's. So, very merciful, very merciful. <laughs> all right, so here we go. Uh, Dr. Marshall, I'm not going to cut you off at 11.30. If you have to go an extra five minutes or even 10, you're, you're more than welcome to do so. By the way, he was a straight-A honor student. <laughs> and um, the reason I said they should all be ashamed of themselves is because the test wasn't supposed to be that easy. <laughs> They were destroying my reputation as a hard marker, absolutely ruining uh, any proper-looking bell curve, you know? They're supposed to be mainly C's and I's. Okay, <clears throat> I want to turn now to the creed submitted by the emperor himself to uh, the Second Council of Lyon, 1274. Here's the profession of faith of Michael Paleologus, I'm going to skip the article about the Father. It's just what you would expect it to say. Also, the article about the Son, perfectly orthodox, everything you would expect. Now we come to the article about the Holy Spirit. We believe also that the Holy Spirit is complete and perfect and true God, proceeding from the Father and the Son, co-equal and consubstantial, co-omnipotent and co-eternal, through all things with the Father and the Son. We believe that the Holy Trinity is not three gods, but one God, omnipotent, eternal, invisible, and unchangeable. Okay? So he just admits the filioque phrase uh, in there and um, uh, lets it go on um, from there. Now, there is controversy about what, if anything else, there was in the creed that the emperor submitted. Um, some Latin texts have an article about the primacy and spiritual power over the Universal Catholic Church uh, in Blessed Peter, the chief head of the apostles, whose successor is the Roman Pontiff. In her, moreover, such a plenitude of power rests that she receives the other churches to a share of her solicitude of which many patriarchal churches, the same Roman church has honored in a special way by different privileges. Its own prerogatives always being observed and preserved, both in general councils and other places. All right? It's controversial whether the emperor's statement ever actually contained that clause. Ah, if you think it's peculiar to have documentary problems, 
about what was actually said and done at an ecumenical council, I assure you, uh, it is not peculiar because there are too many people with too many strong interests. Um, and as a result, um, well, <laughs> wait till you get to the mess about Constantinople number four. That's where I'm headed to this afternoon. That was the very, f uh, this morning, whatever it is. <laughs> that was the very first of the reunion councils, so to speak. And it is an historical nightmare. Well, we'll get there. Meanwhile, I've moved back just a little bit to the first council of Lyon, where there was a statement about the rights of the Greeks. Concerning these matters, our deliberation has resulted thus, that Greeks of the same kingdom in the anointings which are made with respect to baptism should hold to and observe the customs of the Roman church. In other words, they wanted the Greek priests to stop uh, conferring the, council, uh, the sacrament of confirmation. Roman custom left that to the bishops alone. Point two, but the right or custom which they are said to have of anointing completely the bodies of those to be baptized may be tolerated if it cannot be given up or be removed without scandal. Since whether or not it be done, it makes no great difference with regard to the efficacy, efficacy or effect of baptism. All right? So, in other words, Leon Council 1 says we much prefer the Roman way of doing things. The Greek clergy should come around to it if they can be persuaded to do so. If not, eh, don't worry about it. Also, point three, you ready for this? It makes no difference whether they baptize in cold water or hot. <laughs> okay. Dot, dot, dot. If the Greeks should wish rather to preserve their own ancient right in this, namely that the patriarch, together with the archbishops and bishops, suffragans and so on, prepare the chrism, let them be tolerated. In other words, the Latin custom was any, any ordinary can prepare holy chrism in his own cathedral. Okay? The Greek custom was no, no, no. There was to be a kind of solemn get-together of the metropolitan with all his suffragan bishops. And uh, they would do it. Uh, there was a problem about uh, whether to celebrate uh, communion uh, at certain points in Lent, uh, on Good Friday, things like that. I don't think we need to get into those things. Once again, the general tone of the document is to say, well, we prefer our way, but if the Greeks want to do it their way, not to worry about it. Okay, now then. We go back to Lateran Council 4. We're going back now, hang on. Um, we were in 1274. Leon 1 was 1245. We're going back now another 30 years to the year 1215. Lateran Council 4 was one of the most enormous and uh, successful uh, councils uh, of the Middle Ages. 
in the West. It was huge. Uh, there were uh, Greek delegates there. And I want to tell you the main thing to remember from Lateran Council 4. Previously, Rome had never accepted the claim that the Patriarchate of Constantinople was the number two church in Christendom. Rome number one, Constantinople number two, said the Greeks. No, 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 said the Holy See, and had been saying this for years. Rome number one, Alexandria number two, Antioch number three, okay? Everybody want else? Jerusalem. In other words, Byzantium was such a Johnny-come-lately place. It wasn't, on, it, it wasn't in the top three. In fact, the order of prominence that I just gave you, Rome 1, Alexandria 2, Antioch number 3, is the order of prominence stated at the Nicene Council, the first Nicene Council. Okay? And Rome was determined to stick to that. Of course, uh, in the meantime, a couple of funny things had happened to the churches in Alexandria and Antioch. They were swept over by an Islamic flood and, uh, you know, taken away from the empire, incorporated into the Muslim caliphate. Uh, the church in those places was not doing well. Uh, the Muslims had all kinds of ingenious ways to make it a problem to be a Christian, especially their lovely taxes that they levied upon infidels. Look, Alexandria and Antioch had both shrunk uh, to vestigial churches by the year um, uh, twelve fifteen. And so Rome finally agrees to allow Constantinople uh, to hold second place in honor. Here's the text. Renewing the ancient privilege of the patriarchal sees, with the approval of the sacred universal synod, we, that's the Pope again, sanction that after the Roman church, which by the ordering of the Lord before all others holds the first place of ordinary power, as the mother and teacher of all the faithful, the church of Constantinople holds first place after Rome. Alexandria, then Antioch after that, and Jerusalem in the fourth place. Okay. Now, that had long been a bone of contention. Okay. And it is something of an event that by 1215, the Latin church was ready to say, okay, Constantinople, you're number two. Remember that this issue was a very early issue of contention between East and West, going all the way back to the 5th century. Uh, there was a, a funny thing happened at the Council of Chalcedon, in 451, okay, kind of a rump group of Eastern bishops 
held a final session, which they considered a genuine session of the council, in which they not only insisted that after Rome in first place, second comes Constantinople, but also insisted on a reason for that. And the reason given in that famous canon of Chalcedon, which Rome never accepted, the reason given was political. Okay? The Roman church, had, the church of old Rome, had this enormous primacy because it was the capital of the empire. Now that the capital had been shifted to Constantinople, Constantinople should have equal rank, okay. or just as great a prime, uh, just as great a jurisdiction. Never mind primacy of honor. Old Rome wants to keep primacy of honor, keep it. But as far as uh, extent of jurisdiction is concerned, the see of Constantinople should now be uh, on, up there on the same level. All right. Now, of course, Rome never accepted this political explanation of where Roman primacy came from. Okay? And, uh, well, you all know why. Because Rome insists that her primacy of jurisdiction comes from the fact that her bishops are successors of Peter, to whom Christ made certain promises in the gospel. Okay? All right. Now, I can understand theological arguments that would challenge that traditional theological basis for the primacy of Rome. I didn't say I agreed with them. I said I could understand them. What I don't understand is this political theory. I just don't understand it. Yeah, old Rome was the capital of the empire until Constantine the Great moved the capital. Yeah, but during that whole time, the church in Rome was getting zero support from the empire. On the contrary, everybody connected with the Holy See had to be as quiet as a mouse. They had to stay out of the eyes of the government. These were centuries of persecution. I mean, being a bishop in Rome was like trying to survive as a mouse on top of the table. You better get down on the floor and scurry out of sight or you're not going to make it. So absolutely, the, 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 the old empire did absolutely nothing and yet uh, to support the see of Rome, and yet during all those centuries, up until, let's say, 425, during all those centuries, Rome had been hearing appeals, settling disputes, judging heresies, okay? So it's inconceivable to me that anybody would think that whatever authority jurisdiction Rome had came from the political accident that it was in the, the capital city at the time. All right, now I want to read you another passage from uh, uh, the fourth Lateran Council. 
it is a little chapter on the pride of the Greeks against the Latins. Although we wish to cherish and honor the Greeks who in our days are returning to the obedience of the Apostolic See, by sustaining their customs and rights in as far as we are able with the Lord, yet we do not wish, nor are we able to defer to them, in things which engender danger to souls and detract from ecclesiastical honor. When the church of the Greeks dot, 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 withdrew from obedience to the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the schism started. The Greeks began to detest the Latins so much that, among other things, if at any time a Latin priest had celebrated Mass on one of their altars, they themselves were unwilling to sacrifice on these altars before they washed them, as if they were defiled on account of the sacrifice by the Latin priests. Well, yeah, that's a bit much. Um, these same Greeks presumed with indiscreet boldness to rebaptize those baptized by the Latins. And up to this time, as we have learned, certain ones do not fear to do this. In other words, part of the theory, or practice at least, of the Eastern Church in schism was to deny the validity of baptisms done by Roman clergy. Indeed, many Orthodox today deny the validity of the orders in the Roman Church. Okay. So this, this sort of thing obviously is inconsistent with reunion. And uh, so that says the council had to stop. All right, now then, we've got ladder and four under our belts. You know what happened there. I think there is nothing else that can be called a reunion council until we get all the way back to the original. And I'm sorry to say, when it comes to ill fate, the archetype of these reunion councils, namely the event which the West calls Constantinople Council Number 4, Fourth Council of Constantinople, and which the East does not consider a council at all. And this council goes, uh, was going on in the years 869 to 870. It was dealing with Phocius. Okay. Now you need to realize that these union councils that I've talked about, 1215, um, 1274, uh, 1434, and so on, these reunion councils each patched up a time when Constantinople and Constantinople and Rome were admittedly not in communion with one another. But I don't want you to think that during all those centuries, and then from 870 on, uh, the Greek church was continuously out of communion 
with the Latin church because that's not true. Okay. It will turn out that the affair with Phocius the Great, Patriarch of Constantinople at the time, is just an episode, but a very grueling episode that tested the willingness of the two churches to remain in communion. The council I'm going to say a little bit about, but not much, because there isn't too much to say, Constantinople, Roman numeral four, did condemn Phocius, uh, excommunicated him, and so on. Within 10 years, Phocius had been received back into union with the West, and he was patriarch again. Then he fell from imperial grace again and ended his life in absolute obscurity. The poor man disappears from history around the year 876. Just disappears. We do not know how many more years he lived. Maybe 10. Now I, look. Constantinople Council number four did not deal with any matter of doctrine, didn't define any dogmas, it was entirely concerned with what we may call disciplinary and um, canonical issues. And I'm not going to keep you very much longer, but I have to tell you a few things about Phocius. Every once in a while, there comes into history a kind of human hurricane. You know, a man of such... Uh, talent at influencing people and getting people to obey him, that it's almost irresistible. Phocius was like that. P-H-O-T-I-U-S. Okay? Photius. P-H-O-T-I-U-S. To tell the story of Phocius, I have to go back to a little discussion of Byzantine politics. Okay. The adjective has not, did not acquire its modern meaning for nothing. Okay. As late as around 780-800, Constantinople was still groaning under the yoke of iconoclast emperors. Okay. Those emperors forced Constantinople out of communion with Rome, much against the will of the clergy and people of Constantinople. But anyway, it was a terrible mess. Then the last of the nasty iconoclast emperors died. There was a reunion brought about by the Second Council of Nicaea. And then... Um, a, uh, a very interesting lady enters the scene of history. Her name was Theodora. She becomes the queen mother. Okay, this is about 850. She becomes 840, no, 842. She becomes the queen mother because the heir to the throne is a child. 
the heir to the throne is Michael III. Well, he's a child, he's a minor, so a regency has to be arranged. Mama Theodora, who had been the wife of the preceding emperor, uh, now uh, steps forward into that role and wants her own man on the patriarchal see of Constantinople. She picks a man, a remarkable man. Okay, Michael III is still a kid. And Mama Theodora is uh, basically running the empire with help from friends. And she picks for ecumenical patriarch a fellow named Ignatius. Now, you do not know what to make of Ignatius until you hear his last name. Okay? After all, what if I told you that somebody was named John, and then I said, yeah, John Plantagenet. Ooh. Well, it's the same way here. Ignatius's last name was Porphyrogenitus. That was the name of the royal family. Ignatius was a younger son of the preceding emperor. Poor Fioro eh, Genetos. Okay? So this guy is a prince. And therefore, he's used to getting his own way. He doesn't put up with nonsense. And he's extremely zealous to clean up iconoclasm. All during the previous decades when the iconoclast had been in power, he had been a tower of strength in resisting them, defending the holy uh, images and icons and so on and so on. Uh, he was greatly uh, in favor of the Western church because the West had backed him up against the iconoclasts. And he was a fine man. Kids grow up. Have you noticed this problem? <laughs> Michael III hits about age 18, and all of a sudden he declares that he's reached his majority, and he can take over the throne, thank you, Mama. He can rule in his own name, no more regency. What does Mama do? She has to agree. I know other Mamas haven't been so accommodating. Never mind what the Empress Irene did to her rebellious son. But anyway, uh, she, she agreed. She's a very pious woman. Uh, she agreed to step aside, and Michael picks up his uncle as his right-hand man and really co-regent. And the, the uncle is named Uncle Bardas, B-A-R-D-A-S. Very remarkable man. The emperor, now come of age, liked him. <sighs> there are reasons he liked him. Because although Bardas was a well-educated sort of a fellow and uh, polished and courtly and all of that, his morals were on the loose side. Okay. Now there are horrible stories. We don't know whether to believe them. The horrible stories about how Bardas staged orgies in order to draw his nephew into a corrupt 
manner of life. Now, uh, we can't totally discount these stories, although there's a genre of this stuff ever since Suetonius uh, in, in the first century. There have been these gossip stories about all the horrible things the emperors did. But we can't discount it altogether because if Bardas could lure Michael into being a playboy, all the reins of power would remain in his own hands. Right. That's exactly what he did. He managed to turn Michael III into playboy emperor. Ha! Uncle Bardas retains the reins of power. And then trouble starts. Bardas has such a notoriously dissolute life that the ecumenical patriarch, Ignatius, refuses to give him communion. Ooh la lula. At this point, I mean, uh, Bardas has the title of Caesar, which was like assistant emperor, and the patriarch won't give him communion. Bardas does not like this. And so he reaches the judgment, Ignatius must go. Well, if you want to get rid of a patriarch, the easy part is sending in a squad of soldiers, picking him up bodily, and carrying him off into exile somewhere. This they did. Poor Ignatius was sent into exile on an island and languished there for years and years, gradually under worse and worse conditions. However, I told you, Ignatius was of royal blood and therefore stubborn, and you know what? He absolutely refused to resign. Now, this was unprecedented. Look, in Constantinople for centuries, emperors had come to power, wanted their own guy in the patriarchate, and would go to the current incumbent and say, you're out, I'm firing you, I want you to go away, I'm putting my own man on the throne, and the incumbent would have the grace to say, oh well, majesty, I resign. Once the previous patriarch resigned, the sea would be canonically empty. And then the emperor could get a little synod together and arrange it so that the guy he wanted was picked and there would be a canonically proper process producing the new patriarch. See? <sighs> Ignatius wouldn't resign. Okay? They hold him up on this island for years and he would not resign. Nevertheless, resignation or no resignation, Bardas decides he wants his own man on the patriarchal throne and he picks a high-level bureaucrat, okay? A protospethorius, high-level bureaucrat, man of immense erudition, had once been involved in academic life, had taught uh, grammar and logic and theology and whatever there was to teach in those days. He was a polymath, meaning he knew a lot. And... Uh, uh, then he got his, uh, uh, he, he got uh, taken into government and uh, held uh, important bureaucratic positions. And Bardas thinks this is a safe guy, this is a loyal guy. 
and his name is Photius. Bardas has Photius installed on the patriarchal throne. Problem. The throne isn't empty. Okay. This is a problem. There's another little problem. <laughs> I told you the guy had been an academic, a teacher, and all of that. Yeah, and then a bureaucrat. He was a layman. He was a layman. You can't make a layman patriarch. You have to have the decency to ordain him first. First, he's got to become a subdeacon, and then a deacon, and then I don't know what all. Certainly a deacon, and then a priest. It'd be nice to make him a bishop in the meanwhile, but anyway, whatever. Once he's a priest, you, you, you can put him on an Episcopal throne. Well, uh, all this had to be done to Phocius in indecent haste. And there was nobody around to do it except a fellow who had a real grudge against Ignatius. I'm going to give you his name. I'm about to close off here. Don't worry. I'm, I'm getting to the end of this. There was nobody around to ordain Phocius except a bishop who really hated Ignatius. His name was Gregory Asbestos. Just like the stuff that's supposed to give you cancer, asbestos, but with an A there in the last syllable instead of the O. Gregory Aspestus was a Sicilian. What was he doing in Constantinople? Well, he ran away from a Muslim invasion. Remember the Muslims were sending fleets against Sicily? Yep, yep, yep. He's the Bishop of Syracuse in the Sicilia. He leaves town and uh, when he leaves town, by the way, he is in very ill grace with the Holy See. He had been a bad bishop in a number of respects. He goes to Constantinople seeking refuge, becomes a friend of Bardas because Bardas and Ignatius are enemies. So he says, I'll, I'll ordain the guy you want to be patriarch. So here we go. Phocius ascends the patriarchal throne after having been ordained by somebody Rome doesn't approve of at all, and while in fact the sea is not vacant. When this story is sent to Rome, the Pope at the time, charming fellow named Nicholas I, was outraged. Maybe there would not have been a schism if Nicholas I had said, ah, what are you going to do? These Byzantines, I mean, it's always force majeure over there uh, in their capital. The emperor just throws, and his buddies, they just throw canon law to the winds. The heck with it, let him, let Phocius be. But Nicholas wasn't like that. Nicholas was going to be a stickler about the absolute letter of canon law. You can't put a neophyte, that is somebody just, you know, not even ordained yet, you can't elect a neophyte to be a patriarch 
and you certainly can't install him when the sea isn't empty. Well, it is a mess. Nicholas I absolutely rejects the claims of Photius to be the true patriarch. Ignatius, by the way, manages to sneak some people off his island and sends a high-ranking delegation to Rome to talk to Nicholas. Okay, now, all of this is fine. All the pieces stay in place until Playboy Michael gets a little bit tired of Uncle Bardas. Then he starts to bring into his palace a new friend of his. New friend of his, guy named Basil. Nice young Basil, not my grouchy old uncle. Okay. Basil looks at the situation, sits on his hands for about a year, and then has Bardas assassinated. Bye bye, Bardas. <laughs> oh dear. Basil assassinates Uncle Bardas. And uh, that takes away the main support for Phocius. Suddenly, his entree to the palace is gone. Wait another year. Basil is just getting started. He decides, look, there's nothing between me and absolute power but that playboy. So he assassinates Michael III. Bye-bye, Mikey. And now we have a new emperor, Basil. He's not going to stick his neck out for Phocius, who's in trouble with Rome. Phocius has to go into exile. And Ignatius is recognized as patriarch again. Okay. Does this story have a happy ending? No. Because the next time the political wind changes, Ignatius dies, he's out again anyway, then he dies, and Phocius is brought back. And uh, eventually a council is called, what are we going to make of this guy? There are problems about his ordinations, problems about his installation. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I kind of make this the last little anecdote. When Pope Nicholas I first found out about these goings on and how Phocius had been put on the throne of the patriarchal seat, he decided, I, I need all the facts. And he got together two guys to send over there as investigators. One of them was named Radolfus, Radolf, and uh, the other guy seemed to me was named Mirin. Anyway, these guys were sent over as legates of the Holy See to try to gain information, and they were strictly warned. They were not there to judge. They were there to get information, bring it back to the Pope. Wow. These two guys got the Constantinople all right. Little problem number one. Neither one of them knew a word of Greek. For that reason, if for no other, they were toys in the hands of Phocius. 
Oh, Roman brethren, come right in. Let me show you what that Ignatius guy did. Let me show you what I'm doing. And, uh, and then you can judge. <laughs> he seduced those legates into thinking that they were legitimately judges. And they deposed Ignatius. When they got back to Rome... Nicholas I had both their heads on a pike. Okay, well, not literally, but he excommunicated them both, stripped them of their ecclesiastical dignities all in sundry, and, uh, you know, uh, that, would, that made Photius even madder, but then Photius, um, you know, gets kicked out for a while. It's a long, nasty story. Uh, finally, um, uh, with Phocius out of the way, uh, a council is held. Uh, that's Constantinople IV. To flat out condemn him. But the council made a huge mistake. Huge. They not only rejected the claims of Phocius ever to have been true patriarch, but they denied the validity of all his ordinations and consecrations. Okay. Was this good theology? No. Absolutely not. People who are not in, you know, in good ecclesiastical standing, if they are bishops, can nevertheless ordain, validly. The council was saying that all of his ordinations were invalid. Well, by that time, that was a whole lot of bishops. I mean, after all, when Phocius first came to power on the throne, he got rid of a whole lot of Ignatius' old friends. And so the Constantinople IV basically condemned itself by giving the whole Greek higher clergy a reason to turn against it. Ah. All right, enough. Thank you all for your attention. And uh, I hope my little titillating stories give you a little bit of an appetite for Byzantine history. It's fun. Thank you, Dr. Marshner.